Today we're going to cover how to screen a resume or how to prepare a resume. What I'm going to do here is talk you through what goes through the mind of a management consultant or the screening officer or HR officer at a major consulting firm when they get your resume. And I'll also talk you through some tricks and techniques that you could use to possibly improve your resume. So, Let's assume you send through your resume to McKinsey Bain BCG and they are looking at your resume. Now I'm just going to look at your resume independent of GMAT scores, cover letters, essays and you know testimonials and what else you may have supplied. So the first thing we do is when we open up your resume is we look at the format. Now when I say we look at the format, I don't mean we actually look to see did you use the Kellogg format, the Harvard format and so on. What I mean is that the format that you use plays a big role in terms of how we view your resume or what we think about your resume. So if you use a very bad format, it does two things. It firstly detracts from the most important information that you want to share with us. And secondly, if you use a very bad format, it kind of gives us the impression that this guy obviously isn't networking in the right circles, he doesn't have friends at any of the major schools, he probably doesn't have any friends in consulting, otherwise they would have looked at his format and told him to redo it. So formatting does that. It, uh, it does two things. It, it allows us, or it allows you, the person submitting your application, to make sure we focus on the right things. And secondly, it creates the impression in the mind of the person screening the resume that you have the right kind of circles within which you move and you've had the right people screen your resume. A bad framework, sorry, a bad format for your resume creates a very bad impression. So get the framework right. Get the format right. Make sure you are using the right f format. They're very easy to find. Do not go for these horrible formats that come from unknown schools in uh, Asia, Europe and the United States. It's easy to get the Harvard, the Kellogg formats which are very good, the Wharton framework is very good, Stanford format is very good. We like the Harvard format because we think it's, it focuses on the on really the core of the, of the resume as opposed to using um, a text and font sizes to, to, to play up who you are. It really focuses on the substance of who you are and it's very easy to get the Harvard you know, uh, format. They're available on the internet everywhere. So first thing formatting. It's so easy to fix. Get the formatting right. Next thing we look at is the school you went to. I don't care what anyone says, they look at your school. If you went to an unknown school, mm, it's not bad, but you know, it's harder for the interviewer to determine who you are. If you went to Stanford, for example, the interviewer knows Stanford's a great school, uh, you must be a good person. If you didn't go to a good school, it doesn't necessarily mean it's bad, it just means you have to convince the interviewer that you're a good person. We look at school first. Then we look at your grades. We look at, um, you know, what was your GPA? Were you the president of any honor societies? Did you win any awards? Did you win any scholarships? Those are the things we look at. Good school, good grades, obviously thumbs up. We also look at, um, the order is most likely um, postgraduate then undergraduate. Postgraduate carries more weight than undergraduate. If you don't have a postgraduate school then obviously your undergraduate school carries a lot of weight. And again, you know, people tend to assume that everyone who went to uh, McKinsey, Bain, BCG went to Harvard and you know the Ivy League, that's not the case. I mean, especially when it comes to undergraduate, there are many outstanding schools out there that are just you know phenomenal when it comes to placing graduates and there are schools that many people would never have heard of. So, Undergraduate, you can go with a much broader pool when you're applying with. Postgraduate, whether it's MBA or you know a master's program, then it becomes a bit more well known because we know who are the top schools. So again, it is the format of your resume, the school you went to, first postgraduate, then undergraduate, your grades. After that, 
we then go down and look at where you worked. Now we look at two things. We look at firstly who you worked for. Obviously a well-known firm that has a reputation for doing outstanding work and churning out outstanding executives. Looks good in your resume. How long you worked there. If you served a two-month internship at General Electric Finance, it's not going to sound as impressive as serving three years in General Electric Finance and being promoted. And second, we look at what you did. So we will look at the name of the, the firm. Is it a good firm? We look at how long you worked here, and then we look at what you did. And in terms of what you did, I always look for bullets starting with two points, two words, sorry. Led XYZ, analyzed XYZ. If I don't see that in a resume, I kind of wonder what this person did, and I kind of think to myself, have they ever led anything? Have they ana analyzed anything? And remember, that's what consulting firms want. They want people that lead, and they want people that analyze things. Now, finally, I will look at the most interesting part, which is what I call other um, uh, data. Other data is things like, you know, you belong to the Rock Mountain Climbing Club of, I don't know, the Alps. You uh, play professional volleyball and you represent the United States in the Olympic Games. You are a car enthusiast and rebuilt the entire 1916 Lamborghini, whatever it was. The point is that I look for the others, other activities, other personal data because it really creates a very compelling vision of, of who you are. Now, that's in a nutshell. I'm just going to revise this very briefly so you know you can keep track. The first thing I look at is format. You know, the format needs to be very, very compelling, very, very exciting, very, very interesting. The next thing I look at is the school you went to. Is it a well-known school? Is it an unknown school? Then I look at your grades, honor societies, leadership activities at the school on an academic basis. Then I look at where you worked. Then I looked at how long you worked there. And then I looked at what you did when you worked there. Finally, I look at the other activities. And other additional data, other activities is not something that's superficial. A lot of people treat it as if it's not important. In many cases, it is the most important thing. Because to be honest, can you imagine how many top graduates we have coming in from HEC, INSEAD, you know, the, the best schools around the world, in the United States, um, Europe, um, Canada, Australia, South Africa, and so on. It's very hard to distinguish between candidates. Even if you have very good grades, it's very hard to distinguish between you. But if you've done something pretty exciting, like you know, trekked across Cambodia, took a year off, and built a school, and so on, those things make you stand out. Of course, do not put in superficial things like saying, "I like eating out." I mean, I see that a lot. Frankly, I don't like it. I think if you're going to put in any extracurricular activities, you should make a point to make sure that it is something semi-professional, something where you belong to a league, something that you're doing it in a competitive spirit or at least in a team-based spirit whereby you have to do it to the best of your abilities because people are counting on you or you are being graded or scored for it. That always sounds a lot better than saying I like traveling because from the age of five, my father worked in the military and I traveled around the world. That doesn't mean you like traveling. That means you were forced to travel. So don't put in things like that. And in fact, a lot of candidates say things like, I backpacked through Thailand. Let me tell you something. If you backpacked through Thailand in 1960, before the Americans had built it up, then it's exciting. If you backpack th through Thailand today, it means nothing. Because Thailand is a tourist destination. A single 18-year-old female from Brown University could backpack through Thailand. So the point is that backpacking through Thailand is no longer a sign of, you know, um, someone who's really taking life by the horn and is trying to build something for himself and doing something exciting. If you backpack through North Korea today, you can put that in your resume, but backpacking through Thailand is no longer exciting. Secondly, things like like to eat out, well, 
to be honest, everyone likes to eat out, and I really don't see how that can be something that should be additional data. I play sports. Okay, that's nice, but what sports do you play? How often do you play it? Um, do you play sports like maybe once a week? Do you play sports once a month? Are you in a professional league? Interviewers can read between the lines. If they don't see the data, if they don't see the detail, and remember, detail is not a lot. When I tell people you need to put in detail, they think I've got, they've got to write in paragraphs. No. Detail means putting in nuggets of, of rich information that allows me, the interviewer, to understand the scope of what you are doing. You know, how often you do it, when you do it, for who you do it, are you being graded. Detail does not mean more information. Now, I pretty much do all of that in about three minutes. In fact, this is probably an exaggeration. I pretty much go through all of that, skim through it in maybe 60 seconds. In 60 seconds, I've decided if this person is interesting. And then I will go through it in detail. And if I had to be honest, the things that truly stand out is the school you went to and what you did at your employer and who you worked for. The additional information is only going to make you stand out if it's truly exceptional. For example, if you were, for example, between the ages of 13 and 20, you represented the United States at pro baseball or something like that. You know, you played for the national baseball team. If, I don't know if the United States has one, but if that was the case and you did that, that would stand out. It's not recent, but it does show that you, know, you understand teamwork, you understand competition, and you've done something quite different from everyone else. That would stand out. But it's very rare that additional data is going to have enough there to swing the vote in your favor to get an interview. So what you should focus on, if, for example, you're someone who's planning to apply in a year, do not write a resume that is a good resume for today. What do I mean by that? Well, a lot of candidates say, this is the best resume I put together because it's, about, it's much better than the one I had two months ago. Well, that's great. But you're not competing with yourself two months ago. You're competing with other candidates at other good schools. So when you write your resume, don't compare it to the resume you had two months ago. Compare it to the resumes of those people who will be trying to get the same interview slot with you. And that's not difficult to find on the internet, right? I mean, you, you go online and you can find some pretty good resumes. So do not make the mistake of improving your resume. People always make that mistake. What you should do when you write your resume is two things. I'm going to tell you the first thing now just to repeat it. Write your resume not versus who you were two months ago, but versus who you are competing with at other schools and even in your school. So don't just say, this is the best I've ever done and it's a great resume because it's better than before. That's not actually who you're competing with, right? The interviewer doesn't see your resume two months ago and see your resume now and determine that, well, you've shown improvement. No. They don't know what you were like two months ago, but they do know who your competition is. So that's the first thing you do. You write your resume versus the competition, not versus who you were two months ago. The second thing you should do, and this is very important, if you are applying in a year's time, think to yourself, what are the weaknesses in my resume today? What do I need to do in a year's time to overcome that and rewrite your resume in that format? So, for example, if you know that one of your weaknesses is the fact that you don't have a very quantitative background and maybe you're an arts major at some uh, liberal arts college, maybe in the next year you can do a couple of things. Maybe you can prepare and write for the GMAT or you can take a quantitative course. Now, yes, this is why the second point is so important. You're going to write your resume as if it's the version you're going to hand in a year from now. And a year from now, you would have done that quantitative course, right? So you can put it in your resume. So write your resume the way you'd want it to look in a year's time. Put in the courses that you expect to do, the grades you expect to get. And it, this serves two purposes. It forces you 
to achieve those objectives in a year's time. And secondly, it gives you a target to work towards. Now, obviously, if you end up not achieving those objectives, take it out of your resume before you submit it. But what we always encourage candidates to start early, and most, and not I wouldn't say most, but a fairly large segment start a year in advance with us, is that write the resume, not that is better than what you had two months ago, write the resume competing against people from other schools, but also write the resume that you want to have a year from now. That is key. That is how you write a good resume. And let me tell you something. A resume is not written overnight. It's not written in a week. It's not written in two weeks. For a lot of candidates, it takes us months to write the resume because we'll write out one version and we'll think about it. We'll then look at what's... Remember something? We see about 50 resumes a day from all over the world. We see resumes from Harvard, Stanford, INSEAD, Ivy, Queens, Waterloo, South Africa, Argentina, Australia, Thailand, Russia, Germany, Switzerland, even tiny places like Monaco. We get people from those countries submitting their resumes. So we see what are the trends that are taking place around the world, and we can guide candidates in terms of what they need to do to make their resume to be written better and flow better. And even though you may not have that access, what you should do is write out your resume. Don't work on it for a week, but put it up on your uh, fridge or somewhere that you could watch it every day. And what you should then do is every day you look at your resume and think, what could I do better? Just five or ten minutes when you have coffee in the morning and make a little pencil note. And what you notice is that when you relook at it again after the week, you'll have some ideas and update your resume. Do it again. Print it, put it up, don't look at it for a week or just skim through it every now and again and then update it every week. It could be two weeks, it could be a week, it depends on your you know, cycle and how often you have time to do this. But the point is people who sit down and tell me they're going to write their resume and they're going to do it over a week and do not know what they're doing. And in fact, those are really poorly written resumes. So make sure that when you write your resume, it's not a once-off event but a process of continuous improvement, right? The other thing you need to consider is Local nuances. Now, let me give an example of a local nuance. Germans like putting photographs on their resume. I don't know why, but it's a German thing, right? So when we work with German candidates, they insist that they put their photos on their resume. I personally, when I, when I was in consulting and we even interviewed German candidates, it wasn't such a big issue then, but I think some German candidates like it. We also have some candidates who like two-page resumes. Now, I'm okay with that. If there's a local... So if it's a local uh, trait whereby certain countries have certain styles of resumes, that's fine. You can do that. But you must ask yourself, is that a local trait for general resumes or is that a local trait for consulting resumes? Because consulting firms operate on a global model, which means the way they review resumes in Switzerland is the way they review resumes in the United States is the way they review resumes in South Africa. So make sure that whatever local nuance you want to build into your resume is a nuance for consulting resumes and not for general resumes, because we're talking about consulting resumes here. The other thing you must remember is that if you are going to be, for example, someone whose country calls for two-page resumes with a photo and you're applying to, for example, the New York office, you've got to show cultural sensitivity. If you want to work in New York and you send in a two-page resume with a photo, you're automatically telling the recruiter in New York that you don't know what you are. You don't understand the New York office, you don't understand the culture in the United States, which is a warning sign and you automatically will most likely get dinged. You won't even get called in for an interview. So a resume is very, very important. Now, some closing comments on how you can write a very good resume. Let's start at the top. You should have your name and address, telephone number, contact details. Below that, you should have your postgraduate degree with just the most important points, GPA, leadership, other academic awards, undergraduate, same format. 
then work experience. Now, when it comes to work experience, people write it very badly. As I mentioned earlier, I look for led or analyzed. But when you write out a bullet, it should be what is the context for, you know, you've got to write down what is the context of what you did or the context of, sorry, why you did something. For example, you could say, um, uh, due to a rapidly declining market share, helped company XYZ redesign their pricing strategy, which led to an increase of 4% market share. Do you notice what I did? What is I gave the context? Second, I explained what I did. So what is the action I took? And second, what is the result of the action I took? I did not write in a superficial way, such as a diary of what I did, which is, I would say, read calculated a pricing model. No. I wrote on the context, I wrote on the action, and I wrote on the result. You should always write in that format. Preferably, results should be numerical so that you could say what is the value you generate. Sometimes they are not numerical, but that's okay. But try to write out what the result was, even if it was not numerical. Stay away from things like, I've seen this on resumes where people say things like, um, Clients tried to hire me. No one cares if clients tried to hire you. It doesn't even help your resume. If you want to say that you were highly in demand in your local market, you can find a way to put that into your cover letter. But your resume needs to be punchy. It needs to be to the point. It needs to have succinct bullet points. I would always encourage people to write a one-page resume. I've never seen a case for a two-page resume ever in consulting. Sometimes people submit it, it gets through, but generally a one-page resume is what you should go through. And finally, just some closing comments on resumes here, uh, because it touches back to a point I raised right at the beginning, and I think it brings us full circle on the topic of resumes. Just because you went to a school ranked 99th in your country or the world doesn't mean you have no shot, right? Consulting firms, and you know, co the consulting firms have a rule: they will look at any accredited school. That's the fact. They will look at any accredited school. So if you went to an unknown school, a relatively less well-known school, but you did very well, you've got a good profile, you've worked hard, you've worked for good firms, and you're ambitious, you communicate well, you should still apply. A lot of blog forums are going to create the impression that only the Ivy Leagues get into consulting firms. It's not true. I mean, a lot of them do get in, but the, the consulting firms were certainly not dominated by the Ivy Leagues. In fact, consulting firms have a policy of trying to get in locals to staff an office. I mean, initially when, for example, Bain or BCG builds an office, they bring in foreign expats to, to build the office. But over time, they're trying to get the locals to grow into those roles. And those locals, either most of them will be trained at local universities. Some will be trained at foreign universities. But the point is this, do not let superficial blog postings that you read on the internet detract from the fact that if you did well and you are a strong candidate, it doesn't matter what school you went to, the firm will still look at your profile. It probably means you have to maybe try harder to explain to people which, which school you went to and bring out more data points to show that you are a very solid candidate. But do not let things like an, you know, a lowly ranked school uh, deter from you. You can very much craft a very strong strategy for why you should join. And we've worked with candidates like that. We went, we went with schools ranked 90th in engineering in the United States, got offers from all the firms. Other candidates went to school ranked 99th in commerce in the United States and got offers from McKinsey, Chicago, and so on. The point is, consulting firms are looking for people who have drive, determination, ambition, and other people skills and communication skills. You need to look beyond the superficial measures of just going to Yale, Princeton, and so on to determine if you have a good profile. A lot of candidates have very good profiles, but they let little things like that detract them. So, 
Just a final closing note. When writing your resume, write not versus who you were two months ago, but write competing against the people in the market you'll be competing with at the moment. And write your resume again in the format that you want to submit it a year from now, if that's how far ahead you're planning, or write it in the format with the data that you want to have when you finally submit it. And just remember something. There is no de there's no resume that cannot be improved. I mean, we've seen well-written resumes that we totally reoriented, totally rewrite it until it becomes much better and much better and much better. So even though you think you've done the best, don't ask yourself whether you exhausted and done the best in your resume. That's the wrong question to ask yourself. Ask yourself how your resume stacks up against the competition and against who the competition will be in five, six, or seven months when you submit it. That's the most important question, not whether you've given it your all to prepare your resume. That's kind of irrelevant at the end of the day. The true test is how do you stack up against the competition, and one way to do that is to actually get other resumes. You can easily get them on the internet, or to ask colleagues to review your resume. Hope you find that interesting, and we will be back with more posts tomorrow.